Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kylan Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Daniel Nishanian of Bolts Magazine. Um, for those of you who don't know who he is, this guy is like my lifeline during every single election because he is on top of basically every election going on around the country. I, I really don't even know how he does it. I don't know how he does it either. So if you see like, <laughs> oh, the race just went from like 46.7% to 46, 47.6%, it's because he is following it in real time. He also does all the direct ballot initiatives. Yeah. So you know what's going on with direct ballot initiatives. Um, he's big on criminal justice stuff. So he yep. follows, like, he'll follow, like, judges' races and Tuscaloosa. And you're like, how do you know all this Right. Stuff? And then I'll read the article about him and be like, oh, this is actually really important. I'm glad someone's oh, keeping an eye oh, on no it. no doubt. You know? That's what I'm saying. So, he's my lifeline. Yeah. So he's followed, you know, school board rate judges or, like, all these local ballot issues and elections that are super, super important. And as you said, he's got a real focus on um, criminal justice reform. And so I wanted to get his view on a lot of the right-wing culture war directions that they thought were really promising, especially in the wake of Glenn Youngkin's win in Virginia. They were like, all right, we're going to lean into CRT. We're going to lean into trans issues. We're going to lean into like tough on crime stuff. Hasn't worked out for them. Not at all. So I, I want to hear, you know, his assessment of that and why that is and what he's seeing in different races around the country. So I'm excited to talk to him about yeah. that. So before we get to that, though, um, got some I mean, look, I think this is pretty big news and it's pretty astonishing if you ask me that this is happening. But TikTok moderators have now banned at least two pretty prominent Marion Williamson supporter accounts. One of them is called Marion Williamson for Prez, P-R-E-Z, and another one is called Lefty Takeover. And uh, these accounts have tens of thousands of followers, no terms of service violations, but were spammed by Biden supporters mass reporting them. Hmm. So basically, this is like the Biden team. What a coincidence. This happened like the same week that that article came out, which explained, hey, man, Marianne is taking off on TikTok. Yep. Like she is she's getting really, really solid views. And um, then I, I saw another breakdown in a phenomenal Twitter thread. I wish I remember um, who did it, but it's real. Like there's actual real grassroots support for her among the mostly young people. Yep. Uh, and it looks like now here's a good question. Is it do you think this is really like grassroots Biden supporters or is it like, <laughs> you know, like a paid team of hacks? Because I think it's much more likely it's the latter and not the oh, former. Absolutely. And this actually, even before this, all of a sudden, so TikTok was being flooded organically with pro Marianne content where they were just like, you know, she has her official account, which is doing very well and has, I think, close to half a million followers at this point. Already? Already. Jesus. And they've, I mean, they haven't, like, gone crazy posting videos either. Um, Only 65, I think, are around there. Yeah, what that's they right. At least so, as of last week. Right. So already has a huge following there. But then there were all these just organically created, like, let me clip out what she said in that debate last time around. Let me clip out, like, what she said to Oprah back in 1992. Right. And, like, mm -hmm. all this stuff, you know. And um, so this was going crazy. People were talking about this is all over my For You page. You know, this was all flagged to me by my 15-year-old who was, has her finger on the TikTok pulse. Who told us out of nowhere, yeah. oh, my God, this, she's blowing up over this. Honestly, I didn't really buy it at first. And then I started looking at it. I was like, oh, this is a real phenomenon. And it has lots of, like, you know, typical, like, TikTok goofiness to it, like people using AI to imagine what her inauguration outfit is going to look yeah. like or just, like, putting her slang in different outfits to music, like, all kinds of stuff that, again, organic interest, et cetera. So this starts taking off, and all of a sudden, this lady pops up out of nowhere 
who's like barely used TikTok before and starts doing this whole like oppo dump on Marianne that starts getting circulated around. And then this is the latest, I think, um, you know, front in their battle against the organic interest in Marianne on TikTok. Clearly, there's some sort of an orchestrated campaign here to go after some of the most prominent accounts. And it's not just that this comes on the heels of that Ryan Grimm article, article in The Intercept documenting her success there. It also comes on the heels of a report about how the Biden campaign team is trying to fake grassroots support know, effectively and like, yep. like not really buy off influencers on TikTok that and other platforms, they're but they're using access to basically co-opt these people, like inviting them to the White House, like the State of the Union thing. They have hundreds of these people that they're trying to curry favor with. And you can see if you look at their accounts, just straight up pro Biden propaganda. So, yeah, there's there's something orchestrated going on here. There's no doubt in my mind about it. So the influencers are going to, you know, they're talking about giving them their own room at the White House. Right. To make them feel special. Right. So you have like the White House uh, press secretary speaking to most of the media. And then you have like the influencer room where they could talk one on one to people in the administration. Well, so they feel like they get the access. Yeah. And you know what? If you had an open policy where you had, you know, people who were critical of by people from a variety of ideological stances who had greater access to Corinne Jean-Pierre and to the administration, I would say that's great. But that's not the plan here. The no, they're plan buying is off their support. That's what they're doing. people who are favorable to them, who are going to reliably post their propaganda and rewarding them with, like, you know, insider access. It's the very same dynamic, like, insider journalism dynamic that they wield so effectively with the regular press. They're trying to recreate this with, with influencers. And you can see, like, the amount of organic Biden support on TikTok. <laughs> Come on. This is Gen Z. They are not Biden fans whatsoever. Um, and, you know, especially in recent weeks with the right turn, hard right turn that he's taken on things like, you know, the Willow Project and breaking the rail strike and um, on immigration issues, on a host of issues. He's really taken this hard right turn. So they're quite disgusted with him and they love Marianne. So, look, I'll say this. The, the scary thing about this is this is the way that you can quash a grassroots movement. Um, I always said from day one, the thing that scared me the most was total indifference. Just like, don't talk about Marianne, act like she doesn't exist, act like she's not running for president. That's the way to try to make it so she can never catch on and never make a run at it. I would much rather have, honestly, a relentless smear campaign against her because right. at least her name is out there. At least you get to put out your counter narrative. At least she's being talked about. It's a little bit of the theory like there's no such thing as bad press. Yeah. At this point, I just want her to have press. I don't care how much. But what we're seeing here is, or the nature of it, what we're seeing here is they're they're trying to go back to the indifference effect by just like, let's just ban the pro Marianne voices. Let's just silence. Let's just silence them. And that is, I hate to say it, the most effective way to fight back against it so that people are just unaware of who she is, what she stands for. They can't see those TikTok videos, which, you know, have her given great speeches or whatever. And, and it is, it is a terrifying prospect. Um, again, I'd much rather have them just go after Marianne yeah. in a straightforward way and try to smear her because then you can fight back. Like yeah. the other day, Jordan Peterson went after her right. and walked, you know, <clears throat> stepped on a rake in the process because he's gotten so not subtle with his climate change denialism now that it's like it, it just opened up a door for Marianne Williamson to just dunk on him yeah. easily. And she did. And that generates more talk and more cover. And that's all positive stuff. But 
the the this stuff and the silence of mainstream media that's what fears that's what i fear the most so look i don't want to make this a rallying cry necessarily but this is why everybody needs to try to subvert it in any way possible yeah. whether it's on youtube or facebook or instagram or or tiktok i mean they can't they can't silence everybody, right. right? So the more you're out there, the more you're uh, spreading the message, the the better chance Marianne has. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's especially, you know, if the movement gets to a certain point, certain size, certain cohesiveness, then this strategy won't work. Correct. Right. It's only now when it's nascent and it's like this little tender green shoots that they think they can use these kind of tactics. Bully I mean, tactics. Th I was going to say authoritarian. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, for a, for a party that, oh, democracy and oh, the sanctity of, we'll do yeah. anything shut them to up. save democracy. Shut them up. It's like, yeah. For the left of us, be quiet. Exactly. Shut up. Yeah. No plans for debates, right? Mm -hmm. Just everything to completely censor and ignore any other um, contender. So, yeah, really important that, you know, if you like what Marianne stands for, that you share and make sure you get the word out because they're doing everything they can to shut this down. And final point, you have now prominent vaccine skeptic Robert Kennedy, who happens to have the last name Kennedy and happened to be right. part of that family. He's now running for president. Right. It'll be interesting to see how that impacts the dynamic of the race and how that impacts the coverage of the race. Is it going to make it so that the media talks about it more or is it going to make it so that it's viewed as more, oh, this is a clown show, so nobody's serious but Biden I don't know how they're going to cover it, but I will just say I find it hilarious that Joe Joe Biden is out there this past week uh, having gaffes like uh, what did he say? Lick the world. Lick the world at the end of his. <laughs> we got to go out there. We got to we got to lick the world. <laughs> and he's doing that, and the media is trying to impress upon you, like bro, don't even bother challenging him. He's inevitable. He's like really on top of his game, yeah. prime of his career, really. If you look at it, right. it's like, come on, man, Let's come on, just give all, give the other candidates coverage, right? Right. The RFK Jr. is not my cup of tea, but he should have his voice heard. Yeah. It should be, you know, they should have a debate where everybody's involved. But my guess is uh, they're going to do everything to not do that, even though. Uh, you know, Marianne had a poll at 10%. You told me RFK, there's a poll about RFK where he's at 14% uh, of Biden voters, which is a weird sort of... It's kind of a strange universe, a, yeah. but it still shows clearly there is an appetite. There is discontent. We've seen this in a million polls. The Democratic voters are like, we want other options. So lo and behold, when you give them other options, some percentage of them are like, yes, we like that person. So not only was Marianne at 10 percent in that poll, when you looked at just the battleground stage, she was at 14 percent. Yeah. And with and young voters, she's higher. RFK Jr. in this um, poll of it is a strange universe. Biden voters as opposed to likely primary voters it actually would be a larger universe and less sort of like um, – ideological or less like partisan um, because you're talking about general election voters who showed up and voted for Biden. Anyway, he was at 14% with that group. Those numbers already, both of them in double digits, that already way more than would qualify them for a debate right, stage. Right, that's right. Yeah, they say, oh, you have to in have like 3% or more. Right. Something like that. Yeah. And then the other thing that I was noting is in every article about Biden, the press goes out of their way to say he hasn't gotten any real serious I know. primary it's contender. Like, no, 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 no. But You're I'm giving like, your opinion. Right, exactly. According to who? Because y'all seem to think Tim Scott is a serious contender. He's at 1%. Donut. Donut in some polls. Right. You, Donut. You mm. seem to think that Nikki Haley at her like 4% or right, Liz yeah. Cheney at her 2% is a quote unquote serious contender. And yet two individuals who, again, RFK Jr., same, you know, not my cup of tea. I got disagreements with him. Whatever. It's a democracy. They should be able to debate and people should be allowed to have a 
choice. So the supposedly pro-democracy party really showing their true colors. They just here. they drip with contempt for outsiders of any stripe. Yes. They drip with contempt These are both, for them. I mean, well-known individuals, best-selling authors, both of them, um, who have their own base of support separate and apart from politics. And um, yeah, they're just treated like they're, you know, total like don't exist. And by the way, if somebody like Kirsten Cinema were to run for president with her like 12% approval rating or whatever. They'd yeah. be like, Kirsten Cinema, the honorable senator. Joe Manchin has been like flirting with running for president. They and take that seriously. 14 articles on that, right? There's like but three Marianne's corporate like, lobbyists the campaign who vote trail, for him. And they're not paying attention. Yeah, exactly. So, anyway. anyway, obnoxious. Yes. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us now? Apparently, uh, I covered this like sort of tangentially. Yeah. DeSantis. Um, he's trying to do like the whole tough guy routine he's done for a long time yes. going after Disney. Yes. Bro, I'm going to stand up to the woke corporation. So I'm going to go after Disney in the state of Florida, which is definitely not a third rail. Um, tell us how, how that's going. Okay. So first to give you the backstory, you guys may already know this, but I'll get through it quickly. So he passes the don't say gay bill. Disney has a large LGBTQ fan base, and they also have a lot of LGBTQ employees and allies. And there was an outcry after Disney was basically like silent because they've positioned themselves as being this pro-gay company. So they're silent. They come under pressure and they put out some like weak ass statement that like decries the bill and they cut off donations also to Republicans. So DeSantis decides he's going to come in over the top and he's going to punish them and take away their power over this quote unquote Reedy Creek Improvement District, which is kind of a crazy thing because they basically like run their own government, including fire, police, taxing themselves, levying bonds. They even do their own ride inspections. Like it is kind of a crazy setup. OK, it's but like a private city. Disney has their own Disney private runs city. their own private city. right exactly yeah. right mm -hmm. so he's like we're we're not gonna do that anymore okay but then while he wasn't really paying attention the Disney backed board of Reedy Creek um, they put out a public notice as you have to for their meeting and in one of their last meetings before all the DeSantis cronies take over they basically take all of the power of this district and they just hand it to Disney so they outmaneuver so they, do, they outmaneuver them it's a total end run and it's humiliating for him. So since that happened, he has been desperately scrambling around to try to figure out how to deal with the situation. And all of his enemies now on the Republican side smell blood in the water and they are going hard at him, including Trump, who is saying that he's getting killed by Disney. He called this a PR stunt. Which, by the way, that, this is all true so far. Yeah, it this is, is all, all accurate. It is all. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. And he's saying, you know, like. Basically, like Disney can threaten any like this is a disaster situation for DeSantis. And so DeSantis suggested he, he's still trying to do his tough guy bluster. He suggested like, oh, well, maybe we're going to build a state prison by right. Disney. Um, yeah. as by the way, that's some kind of own a trying to appeal, a trying to appeal to the general electorate in America. And it's like. I'm going to shut down Disney World. <laughs> I'm going to shut down Disney World and I'm going to build, I'm going to like house a bunch of criminals right, next yeah. door while you're like, bringing oh, your family bro, this there. This is going to go over with that this, median voter. Good job. Good right. Job. Exactly. So it's this weird fight because listen, I, I said this on Breaking, but like there's no one to cheer for here. Disney is genuinely like this large, terrible, unaccountable corporation, treats their workers like shit. Like there are no heroes here, yeah, right? But it's not like DeSantis is trying to fix that. No, ex right, exactly. Yeah. And then DeSantis is like, you know, flailing around and trying to make, get his score his like woke points and thought he really had a strong hand here gets humiliated by getting outmaneuvered by Disney. And then, you know, Trump as he does just completely smelling blood in the water. The weird thing is, or the interesting thing I should say is 
DeSantis's whole appeal is really to this more chamber of commerce, more like like hard pro-business, um, more affluent part of the Republican base and also the, the donor set. Yeah, wealthy well, the, Republicans and the donors, right? Yeah, the mm-hmm. attack on Disney, Larry Kudlow is out there being like, DeSantis lost his mind over this stuff and this is convoluting the Republican message is what Chris Sununu said, Nikki Haley saying similar things, Chris Christie saying- Chris Christie, I covered that one, what Chris Christie said. Similar things as well. So. The move is unpopular with like the donor set and the more affluent part of the Republican Party. The part of the Republican Party that's like non-college edge, like white working class part that might be more open to this anti-woke sort of like populist pitch. Well, those are Trump people. And now Trump is telling them, no, De- DeSantis basically got cucked by Disney in this. So he's losing them on this. So this has all ended up being basically Look, like a catastrophe for they're him. Just, they're, all, they're overreaching. This is, this is the problem. And we'll uh, talk about this with our guests too. But I mean, like, look at what's happening with Mr. Beast. It's like Mr. Beast has a trans friend and the, there's the all these right wing critics who are like, oh, some of them are just concerned trolling like, oh, is this bad for the Mr. Beast brand? I don't know. Is there going to be a backlash from his audience? Some of them are doing that. And then others are just launching an all out attack on the the trans friend of Mr. Beast. And it's like you're dealing with somebody. Mr. Beast is like bigger than Disney. His oh, YouTube yeah, videos get like over 100 million views a piece. You are punching above your weight. You know, Disney, I got a million problems with Disney, but like this idea of, oh, they're too woke. Oh, we need to stop. They put a black guy in the most recent Disney movie. Oh, there's a lesbian. Oh. Nobody cares. Yeah. You know what the reaction is from your normie American? They're like, there's a new Disney movie out, right? right? Or, or they're like, okay. Or they don't know the details of it. Or if they do hear about it, they're like, yeah, I mean, I guess that's what it is these days. We're being more diverse or whatever. Yeah. Nobody cares. You guys are, they have terminal online brain rot. That's and DeSantis true. is the worst among them. Yeah, and true. Chris Christie made the point. He's like, look, you want to be president. You couldn't see a couple moves ahead. Like, you couldn't outmaneuver Bob Iger, but you think you're going to outmaneuver Putin or right. she? right, right. And it was sort of a devastating point. It is a devastating point. So uh, it's uh, I love it. I love the fight. Um, he's totally imploding in a comical way because to this point, he always at least was solid on the anti-woke stuff for the Republican base. You know, like, oh, there he goes again. DeSantis really leading the way on this anti-woke chart. Yeah. And now he just ran into a brick wall on the thing that was supposed to be his best issue for the right. Republican base. Correct. And it's just embarrassing. And then Trump's doing a victory lap because, of course— well, and not only is Trump doing a victory lap and it smells blood in the water and just decides opportunistically to like utterly gut DeSantis on this issue. But at the same time, he just got eight different Florida con- oh, Republican members funny of Congress story, funny story. to one endorse them, him. One of them, Repu- uh, Republican politician uh, in D.C., met with Ron DeSantis. Yes. And then immediately when he got out of the meeting, he's like, yeah, we had a good meeting. So I'm endorsing Trump. In the same tweet. <laughs> Dubia. Yeah. I think that's Greg Had a Dubia's great meeting with Ron DeSantis. Anyway, I'm endorsing Trump. <laughs> so, And there's a backstory of that. I don't know if you saw the backstory. So apparently DeSantis is just terrible at the, you know. Retail politics. Retail politics right. and doing the let me call you on your birthday. I relate let to me- that, by the way. This makes sure. it more relatable to me. Yeah. Sure. I relate to it, too. Should this stuff matter? No. Does it? Yes. Absolutely it Especially matters. if yeah. you are trying to play the inside game, which he is. So this Stuby guy had never heard from DeSantis. DeSantis had never even called him. Um, they invited him to some event. He was going to stand behind DeSantis at some like hurricane relief in- event. He goes to the event 
And then DeSantis' aide is like, no, you're not going to stand up on the thing. And then once Trump starts rolling out these Florida endorsements, finally, this is the first he hears from the DeSantis team whatsoever. And that's why, yeah, he's like, no, fuck you. Like, no. And that's not the old. There were other ones that like, you know, DeSantis didn't support him in his fight for ways and means, whatever. But all this you know, he didn't sow the seeds that you need to sow if you're going to play the inside game. And so right now, Trump has like 63 endorsements. And, and he has like three has or three. something. Yeah. yeah. And and he doesn't know. And in Florida? Like, if, if those numbers were reversed, Trump would spin that as like, I don't want their endorsement. I'm an outsider. I don't want anybody from the swamp to endorse me. Yeah. But DeSantis doesn't even have the political chops to spin the fact that he doesn't have endorsements into a positive. He's just sort of flailing wildly and well, losing and in his own game. Well, running and, yet. Yeah, I know. Which limits him, too. I mean, he, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's it, not looking good for him. And Trump, by the way, is great at those things you just described, where if you say positive things about him, it doesn't matter if you're a serial killer. He will lead a bit. This wonderful guy, great guy. Yeah. Many, many people say he's misunderstood. There's some things that are ac- accused against him. I don't believe them personally. But <laughs> like, this yeah. is what he would do. He would go to yeah. bat for you. As long as you, you know, coddle his ball sack and tell him he's wonderful yeah. and say he's the best, then he's going to do that for you. But, of course, if you, the tiniest light against Trump, and it's, yeah. you're well, done. Scooby, that same dude who did the put Hilarious the name. Stop saying that name. name. <laughs> Scooby-Doo. <laughs> I think that's his name anyway. I could be, like, making it up. Anyway. Um, I hope it's not. Apparently. Apparently, he had some like tree trimming accident, was injured in the hospital recovering, and Trump called him. And so, again, like, should these things matter? You know, you should be choosing based on the person's policies and et cetera. But do they matter with these policies? Yeah. Of and by the way, they do. and Trump is not doing that because he's a good person. No. He's doing, yeah, he's doing strategic. it because he has ulterior motives. Of yes. course. But these guys are too, uh, he was nice to me, Papa. Yeah. You know, like that's how that's how they look at it. That's how they look at it. Jesus, children. All right. Well, we have a lot more to say about the uh, Republican culture war. So let's get to it with our guest, Daniel Nashanian of Bolts Magazine. Daniel, welcome. Great to have you. It's great to join you. Yeah. So something I wanted to get into with you, you're really the perfect person for this, is, you know, the Republicans, after Glenn Youngkin won in Virginia convincingly, They really felt like they had a winning hand with regard to cultural issues. They thought they're going to lean into CRT. They thought they were going to lean into trans issues. They thought they were going to lean into like tough on crime, law and order stuff. Hasn't really panned out for them electorally. And so to start, I wonder if you could like, do you agree with that and uh, make the case a bit for how these elections for Republicans have gone a bit sideways? Well, you know, I think it it all comes down to the fact that a lot of the playbook you're just mentioning uh, around around critical race theory, around uh, kind of these attacks on civil rights comes from the position of uh, being very, uh, be, like positioning yourself as an aggrieved party, as as this idea that that um, white conservatives in the country are are in the minority, are being oppressed, when of course the, the right-wing agenda controls the federal courts, they control so many states, so when you sort of play that playbook, it's gone extraordinarily far because of just how much um, leverage they have to make gigantic quick changes with from, from, from Dobbs, obviously, a year ago to all of the state laws that have passed. Um, and, and so in, in, in now that ele- elections are unfolding in 2022, 2023, the sheer scope of how far the right has already been able to go in just a few years of having this, extraordinarily strong um, majority and also what, what they're doing at the state level, um, I definitely agree has played a huge role in some of the results we have seen um, for Democratic candidates 
in 2022, it wasn't, you know, obviously a, a democratic triumph, but given the, the history that Democrats were going against, there was uh, it was a huge loss for the Republican Party. And then we're, we're seeing again how um, issues like abortion played out in the Wisconsin race, for instance, a couple of weeks ago to control the state Supreme Court there. Um, and you know, we can we can get into so many examples where the right thought it had a plan, a winning hand, bringing up some of its culture war issues in in races that it where it thought it would it would win the race and and instead f -f -f falling short over and over again. Um, and you know, I will say, I don't know if that is necessarily always reflected in how these races are thought about. I think there's been mm. a consensus formed around abortion that, that the right's position on abortion has become something that may, makes it lose elections. I, obviously the, the narrative, the conversation is still very different on other issues. So um, when we have this conversation, I'm reminded of right after the midterms, you had some people on the right like Ben Shapiro who were out there and they had a semi-correct analysis because he was saying basically that um, the candidates who did the worst were the ones who were most married at the hip to Donald Trump, Doug Mastriano, Carrie Lake, um, and the ones who did the best were people like Kemp in Georgia who had distanced, distanced himself from Trump, DeSantis who didn't get a Trump endorsement. And so his argument was like, look, these are like, stop running bad candidates. And I think his main argument was, Mostly that these people are election deniers and that's what's killing them. Um, now, I've, I, that's like a semi-correct analysis. But what's interesting is that, of course, his preferred candidate is DeSantis, who performed very well in, in Florida. Um, but now DeSantis has really leaned into very similar, like adjacent issues to, to the Trump Republicans. Like the Trump Republicans, again, were election denying. DeSantis isn't really doing the hardest version of that, but he is leaning into anti-trans stuff, LGBTQ stuff, fighting Disney, wokeness. We just saw him recently sign the bill, which, uh, you know, is a six week abortion ban, right. which is super extreme. And he kind of seems to know that this is extreme because he signed it at 11 p.m. at night and really like sort of quietly did it, hoping it would like appeal to the base. But the normies and the moderates wouldn't know. So uh, do you have the same view that I do that it looks like the disagreements are between on, on the Republican side are like, hey, should we run the most extreme candidates who are election denying as well as fighting the culture war? Or should we just run the candidates who are doing the culture war but not election denying? It seems like that's their Overton window. That's where the ground they're fighting on. And that explains why they're really not doing very well. They didn't do well in election and that should have been the red wave and they're still underperforming today. Do you have that same analysis? There's like nobody in the room that's actually giving half decent election advice that could make them appeal to moderates? I mean, I think some of what you're saying is that the bar is extraordinarily low when when the, the bar of what of what decides whether you're on the far right um, and whether you is whether you are act, act, actively trying to overturn elections um, in a presidential election. And and so um, and that that indeed was was a, ma a major issue. I entirely agree in 2022 where the candidates were very avowedly election denying and were actively running on saying they were going to overturn the election results of their own state, which is, if you just pause and think about it, a, a fairly wild platform. Um, in Arizona, especially, we were seeing candidates run by telling their voters they were going to overturn the results of the past election, let alone a future one. Um, so that, that bar is, is fairly low, right, to decide who um, 
is who is electable or not. And yet mm -hmm. that's the narrative. I mean, since since 2016, really, there's been this narrative that, that Trump sort of set, set, sets this bar, which makes it kind of easier for everyone else to differentiate themselves. Um, yeah, but you know, I, the 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 pool of Donald Trump has has had effects on the rest of the Republican brand candidates who did try to distance themselves. It, it's not been, you know, we, we I can think of a lot of people who did try to dance of being in the middle, and that actually hurt them as much because they because of who they've antagonized. I also think it's important if we're specifically looking at voting rights and political this like the respect for democracy that Ron that that that, that like Ron DeSantis is probably one of the worst offenders in the country. Um and the thing election denierism as like the, the question of whether you agree with the result of the 2020 election um is one question but 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 what um but what Governor DeSantis has done since taking office is very specifically go after voting rights in Florida, especially the voting rights of black residents, um, creating what is a, a, a de facto uh, poll tax in Florida in particular um, over in 2022, creating a police force in the state, um, arresting, um, black, yeah. uh, arresting black Floridians um, who had been told by the state that they were eligible to vote turns out incorrectly, but it was the state's mistake, then arresting them. There, that, that is also a, 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 a campaign of intimidation that is happening in Florida. And so again, on, on the very issue of effectively suppressing elections, right, that I think DeSantis just has, has to be part of that conversation as well. Yeah, I think that's a really great and very important point yeah. is that there are far more issues around voting rights and elections than just whatever you say or don't say about um, the 2020 election. I wanted to ask you specifically, Politico had this article that is actually what inspired me to uh, reach out to you. The headline was why GOP culture warriors lost big in school board races this month. And again, really after the Glenn Youngkin victory, there was all this sense of optimism on the right and these very explicit organizing efforts of like, we are gonna field all of these slates of school board candidates across the country are going to be focused on, you know, getting cl critical race theory out of schools and, you know, any sort of books that might be in a quote unquote inappropriate for children by our metric. Like these are we're going to go hard on backing these kinds of school board candidates. And um, it hasn't I actually thought this might be fairly successful only because these are you know, small, often nonpartisan races. A little bit of money can go a long way in them. But it actually hasn't worked out that well in a bunch of these school board races, especially in the Midwest that just occurred. Um, their candidates didn't do particularly well on this platform. And my theory is effectively like, look, I do actually think education is inherently political. Um, the things you choose to cover, like, for example, the fact we don't teach labor history, that's a very political choice. But most parents want to feel like the public school system is as neutral as possible. So when you have candidates who are just running sort of a normal like, we want more teachers in the classroom and we want to have more funding for our schools and a higher quality education. And then you have people who are running a very clear like ideological crusade. I can see how even people who may lean right or certainly moderate or independent would be very turned off by that ideological crusade at the local school board level. Yeah, that, that was a very interesting uh, series of events in Illinois um, uh, that that happened a few weeks ago. Um, I think I want to like maybe like take a offer like a 
ambivalent answer mm. <laughs> for a second, which is that, you know, I'm going to I'm going to mostly agree with with your analysis, but I just want to start by saying we can't overstate the degree to which these this type of like attacks on, you know, LGBT uh, rights or black people are also uh, electoral winners. You know, I think what we're talking about is elections that are happening either in the margins or in swing states but you know a lot of the country has been taken over by people who are passing externally extraordinarily um reactionary laws on on these issues and 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 are and 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 with no electoral pushback really um but um and so just i wanted to to acknowledge that as well but what is particularly interesting in the illinois situation is in in the course of like modern American history and the and the rise of the right, what they did very effectively, uh, especially on, ed, on on education, right, is mount movement a movement like a, a, a various movements to take over school boards, take over education, not not and not necessarily in stealth ways, but really taking advantage of the fact that it was an asymmetrical fight that the, that that the right came came to war over education. Uh, often in like uh, under the radar elections, under the radar meetings, under the radar appointments, they were there. They were ready to take on these these uh, these elections, these people, and um, and and that sort of in, in in Illinois, for instance, they were all these in, all, all these groups that were endorsing, spending money on behalf of this con of these very con conservative candidates in suburban areas of Illinois that aren't known for being like super progressive but also are known for like you know being 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 far to the right and what is interesting in illinois for instance is there was a, a counterattack. it seems like the democratic party actually got involved it seems like all other groups were ready with counter lists They're, the fact that this is being watched especially in more suburban areas areas that aren't like just uh, just desperate to get the most considered candidate on the ballot there, there's this more symmetrical fight that's happening on these issues that maybe is very important because the like stealthness of it is, you know, we we're talking about an election in April of 2023, right? This is like a, a, a spring election in an off mm -hmm. year. Yep. Very few people are even voting. The fact of just like making people, informing people that there's this conservative list that are trying to take over school boards is half of the work is 80% of the work. What you need to do is getting people to the polls and well, vote, vote if they're opponent, yeah. I think part of what you are uh, alluding to here is the fact that, you know, the, the policies themselves are not popular. I mean, Dobbs is very unpopular. Six-week abortion ban, very unpopular. Like, don't say gay law. These things are, you know, attacks on trans people. These are not popular policies. Oftentimes, the way that Republicans have been able to get through a very unpopular agenda through is either by using the anti-democratic means built into our system already, like the courts, um, as in Dobbs, or as Ron DeSantis is doing down in Florida, trying to like rig and, you know, who is able to even vote in the state to try to control the electorate in a way that they feel is more favorable, or by people just, you know, aren't really paying that much attention and they're very organized, and there hasn't been a comparable level of organization on the other side. So what they can't handle is a situation like with this uh, Wisconsin State Supreme Court seat, where you actually, in a, amazingly, in a spring election, have a huge amount of focus. 
have also a lot of money spent on this thing, have people really paying attention and really actually understanding what is at stake. And when those conditions are met, it's a devastating electoral landscape for Republicans. You know, it, it's a cliche to say that it comes down to uh, who, who who actually goes out to vote. But we're talking about these these uh, off year down ballot elections. It's 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 really intensified so dramatically. The Wisconsin race is a great example where, um, like, if you compare turnout to a presidential race, it was obviously very low. Um, but if you compare it to other races that have happened um, for the state supreme court, it was very high, and especially driven by. Um, urban areas of 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 the state um and that again for 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 elections like uh elections like like school board we're often talking about five percent ten percent of the electorate turning out those are such low numbers and these these officials have so much power that had that has really um created the space for uh, for asymmetry and i think all of this kind of being part of a very visible right-wing project, which which the right is very uh, e eager to explain and often, right? Um, uh, it, uh, the fact that this is all connected and that they're presenting it as that and that they're presenting these, these um, school board elections and other races uh, as their opportunity to build up power, I think has created more attention on the other side um, in a way that has, that has, that has had ma major results, yeah. Mm. So I'm I'm interested in um, the whole law and order narrative that flopped in the midterms. It, first of all, it struck me that um, it was really intentional and very specifically for the election because the timing of it seemed to line up with that. Like they started leaning into it maybe a month or two out from the uh, from the midterm elections. And um, what was interesting is that I feel like there was sort of a general consensus uh, in media and even in like online circles that like, oh, this is a real issue and this is landing and it's going to work because everybody and their mother was predicting a, like a red wave election. To my credit, I was actually very agnostic. You remember that. Mm -hmm. Everybody else was very certain. I was like, I don't know, man. I don't know. I see a lot of these election deniers. I think that's going to offend people's normie instinct. But um, in your opinion, why did like the whole law and order um, campaign messaging did that stuff fail because it just didn't line up with people's personal experience where, you know, people are not living in Mad Max, so they feel like this seems like it's a little bit of a contrived narrative. Um, what's your take on why that failed? Yeah, I, if it's it's a very important question. Uh, and I think it's, I, you know, can start answering it, but I think the fact that we don't have clear answers also is like, I think a huge part of the picture. Uh, so let me, let, let me take a step back and say, that what, what is happening is that when an election happens where a law and order candidate does win, which happens frequently as well, or when that a, a candidate runs a law and, law, law and order campaign attacking criminal justice reform, there is a, re a ready-made story around it. We all know from 30, 40 years of following US politics, why that race is supposed to succeed, mm -hmm. right? When, when Paul, Paul Vallis got the win in the first round of the Chicago mayoral race and ended up losing the runoff when he won the first round or when um, it or, or just when a candidate sort of deploys there's there's a lot of articles that are ready to be run not 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 even be based on people agreeing or not just because that's what we expect 
will happen. You run that campaign, you talk about the police and you win the election. Um, you know, and there, there's there's these election, there's these other examples people people can quickly seize on to as as, as for that narrative. It means something. Um, when someone like Brandon Johnson wins the Chicago mayoral race, uh, or when candidates who were attacked on criminal justice reform win in 2022, the there is no like kind of like there is no frame within which people know to put that. So right. it often it often ends the conversation. Oh, Brandon Johnson won Chicago. Okay, next. Um, and so I think I think um, you know I'm. Not answering your questions, so I'm doing part of what I'm saying, but I think there has to be so there's there has to be so much more reporting um, there about trying to understand why, for instance, uh, a community in in the communities in Chicago or or like or Philly that have higher rates of of um, of crime and incarceration are not following the the law and order tough on crime um, candidates. Uh, and I know I think part, part, part of the answer that I have is at least in, in those areas as well is that for the past 20, 30 years, there's such experience in some areas of the consequences of, of uh, mass incarceration of the fact that large share of, of residents are interacting with, with, with in and out of jail um, that you know you can know a family member and you can yourself have been incarcerated. That 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 has just created a very different awareness of, of these issues, even even apart from um, you know some of the advocacy and activism over the past few years. That has that has sort of changed, at least in 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 areas um, that have higher incarceration. Um, that has kind of changed changed the people's understanding of these issues. Yeah. Um, and yeah, but I think that's such an important point. When Eric Adams wins in New York City. This is treated by the media as like a rebuke of progressivism across the country. Yep. Right? Right. When Larry Krasner holds on to his seat, Philly reform, Philly DA, that's just a fluke. When Brandon Johnson wins in Chicago, a city, you know, that does have real issues with crime and where this was a huge issue in the race. It's not like, you know, violent crime was some side issue nobody cared about. This was a really central issue. And people evaluated the candidates and they were like, we actually want the progressive approach over the let's just like flood the zone with even more police. Chicago being a city that already has uh, way more police per capita than cities like New York and other places. They actively chose the progressive approach on the issue of crime and community safety in particular. So I wonder if you could speak to that race uh, in particular, what you think Brandon Johnson's victory there means. And also, you know, I've already seen concerns. We've certainly seen this before, where when a candidate who's a reform candidate wins that the police union doesn't like, that there's oftentimes this um, response from police where they basically sort of like engineer a crime wave by just deciding they're not going to fully do their job because they don't like the person who's in charge. They want to make them look bad. Yeah, I mean, I think so I think that, that 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 contrast between New York and Chicago is is uh, is is a, is a good one. Just and also, but also the contrast between how the first result in Chicago that had Johnson behind the the articles mm -hmm. that generated versus the article that were generated in the same race after the runoff. Um, and you know, this is not to say again that that um, that law, law and order have crime candidates don't win. They 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 do win a lot of elections. That's interesting too. Um, it's just thinking about what 
what what what the wins from different people are are taking to mean. Um, and I think the Chicago election, you're absolutely right. What, what is very interesting in that and other ones like like the election by Krasner you mentioned and, and others is that Johnson um, Johnson it, it was part of Johnson's platform to to develop a different approach to uh, to to crime um, in a way it, it, this wasn't a campaign between someone who talked about crime and to, took it and took it and took it very seriously and someone who didn't but um, Brandon Johnson who uh, resisted criticized his opponents calls for just adding um, to the CPD to the to the police department as a remedy for things talked about increasing uh, violence prevention programs um, uh, investing more in public services as um, also part of the conversation around around safety um, for instance in uh, investing more in services that are going to help people on on the transit system who are ex experiencing uh, homelessness. Um, obviously, the, the transit situation in particular has become sort of a, uh, a prism through which a lot of these debates are, are happening. Mm -hmm. And Nelson's and opponent, Vallis, wanted to add police to, to the transit system. That, that, that was his, his solution to the same, to the same question. Um, and, and that's something we're really seeing all around, where like, the conversation really on the progressive side has also been about thinking about what it means to um, to think about safety in in a different way that doesn't rely on on incarceration as as the automatic reflex but doesn't just change the criminal legal system but also thinks of again other parts of services from transit to housing to education as part of the investments that are absolutely necessary to to um to uh to to also ch change the to, to change the situation there what um, do you think what do you think is kind of the overall scoreboard because you track a lot more races than i'm able to track and um i know criminal justice reform is a, a particular focus of yours yeah so do you think that on balance more reformers are winning or do you think more lock them up types are winning or do you think it's more or less 50 50 or very yeah. city dependent like do you see any sort of trends in these races i think it's a great question i think the, the a better a, the good way to answer it isn't necessarily to be like it's not like a democrat versus republican how many people that's not it's not easy to answer what what is very clear rather than like who's winning in 2022 is comparing it to four eight years ago 12 mm. years ago if okay. you do that the trend is is quite dramatic that the that 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 the reform camp and progressive candidates have made humongous strides in um in in races that that it's not that just that they were losing them eight 12 years ago that they weren't even competing in them the idea of a a, a civil rights attorney or a public defender or career public defender running for for the a race was just not something that really really existed in the same way eight, eight 12 years ago um let, and then let alone the idea that, that such candidates have have won elections or are consistently running in in, in major races so that, that that is just a, a giant transformation i think there was this idea and 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 you know places like philly um which you mentioned were sort of one of the first first embodiments of that. There was this idea going into 2022 that there was a 
that was that was done. That now st starting now the right had woken up. That there was more backlash. The prime wave, and this was going to recede. That is not what happened. There, there, there are definitely instances where where critics of reform got major wins, and I think that's very important to talk about as well. Um, in particular, Chesa Budin in in San Francisco, who was recalled. I guess in the summer last mm -hmm. last year, yeah, yeah, in June, and there were other candidates who ran on on um, reform in major counties that lost. But then um, there were also ma ma major wins for for progressives in November. Places like Minneapolis, places like uh, Alameda County, which is in Oakland, um, got got very pro progressive prosecutors elected. Um, and I think that surprised a lot of people those are major counties and new people who have come onto the scene uh, to sort of ca carry that flag. And just for just to just hover on that for a second, what's particularly interesting about the Alameda County race, which I just mentioned, is that um, it's ju just outside of San Francisco. Uh, Alameda County is uh, a, a very large county, it contains Oakland and other cities. It's bigger than San Francisco. And uh, the candidate who won named pa Pamela Price is a civil rights attorney um, who has worked for a very long time around, uh, around um, lowering incarceration and various reform efforts. And, and she won in Alameda County just a few months after Boudin's recall. Boudin's recall was got wall-to-wall coverage on, an, uh, on MSNBC and, and everything else. I imagine that most people have not heard of, of Pam Price. Um, and and that that's again not to minimize one, but the fact that all of these races are happening that wouldn't have happened four eight years ago is also extraordinarily important. Yeah, can you um, talk a little bit about? I've been very interested in the reaction by the police to Brandon Johnson's mm. win. I saw Adam Johnson talking about this on Twitter. They're effectively like openly trying to sabotage Brandon Johnson by like not doing their jobs. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because that strikes me as uh, it's a very dangerous precedent to set because, again, as Adam Johnson said, he's like, if you're going to do this, then, like, why even have elections? So just let the police then pick the mayor if you're not going to do your job because you don't like the mayor. Yeah, I mean, that, that is something we have we have um, we have seen in other places where um, the police either pretty openly or at least um in the words of their opponent or, or, the, or the critics or the progressive officials that are being attacked by the police, that the police has um, made, 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 made choices to disengage from some things in, in, in reaction to what progressive officials have done. In Chicago, the head of the union, the, 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 the FOP, the, the, the local police union, um, attacked Johnson throughout, throughout the campaign uh, and said, I think a week or two before the election that if Johnson wins, I don't remember the exact words now, uh, so I'm paraphrasing, but I think he said a, a thousand um, police officers would would quit, wow. um, that they would be chaos on the streets, something something along those lines. And that actually, what was interesting about, he, he was so open before the election that it created, that created its own form uh, that 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 actually did generate attention in a way that, that does, this stuff just doesn't usually. And um, Vallis, who was being supported by the police union, had to criticize those those comments. So there was an interesting um, there was an interesting uh, moment where the police union was so open about that about that strategy that that it uh, it even made it even made the, the more conservative candidate uncomfortable. Um, I think that's going to be a huge test for Brandon Johnson and 
for any a progressive official who wins anywhere in the country, uh, police unions specifically are extraordinarily organized to make not just criminal justice reform fail or policing reform fail, but make things that are attached to it fail as well. Like if a, if a candidate comes in with a, a, a platform um, on, 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 on education, on housing, um, that all of that is enmeshed in their standing of the public and the police union in particular taking down progressive officials on, on one issue has reverberations for the entire um, range of issues that the left cares about. So I think it's, it's very, uh, and Chicago is going to have that, is going to have that, that defining, I think that's going to be a defining issue in the, in the um, next, in the next few years in Chicago. So to go back to the sort of big picture here, you know, the um, analysis we sort of started with is in the midterms and in some of these other races, like the Republicans thought they had winning hand with these cultural issues. They, you know, really leaned into it, CRT, anti-trans, law and order, et cetera, and it fell flat. A counter narrative could be that, oh, those issues are actually popular with voters, but sort of superseding those and overtaking them was the fact that the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the, you know, the issue of abortion was so profoundly unpopular for them that it sort of overrode these other issues that may have actually been a winning hand for them if Dobbs hadn't happened. Um, impossible to know a counterfactual, but what do you think of that analysis? Um, I'm, I'm going to, first of all, partly agree that, that the Dobbs decision, I mean, there's, there's no, there's no doubt that, 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 that abortion rights have been absolutely, um, a, a game changer for how a lot of people are thinking about politics and are thinking about state elections and just thinking about things like wh whether to even go vote in the state Supreme Court race, right? Um, I think, I think, and it's, it's hard, especially in races that have to do with, um, like a U.S. Senate race or a governor's race, how do you choose what? How do you I try to uh, 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 isolate one issue over another? I think you know there's there's indications. What what's interesting about a DA race, for instance, that I, we were just talking about is that 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 for instance is really about the issue of, of criminal justice, right? Um, and abortion rights I actually have played a role, but in a lot of places like Minneapolis or San Francisco, for that matter, or Alameda County, it's just not part of the conversation. So so that for instance. Uh, isolates that issue a little more. That's but also what I what I would point out is that some some candidates on the Democratic side did not shy away from the things that they were being attacked on. Um, a lot like you know a lot did and do obviously but the one I'm thinking of is in the uh, Pennsylvania uh, se Senate race in 2022 <clears throat> Fetterman faced um, Fetterman faced a lot of attacks over over crime. And I think that sort of has been played into the general Republican Republican uh, approach to the 2022 midterms, where attacking your opponents on as being as being too soft on crime. What is particularly interesting about Fetterman is that um, Fetterman, as uh, an official in Pennsylvania, made it a, an essential part of his of his time as lieutenant governor to think about people who are in prison for life in Pennsylvania. Um, often for um, typically for violent crimes and murder. Pennsylvania has one of the highest 
rates in the country of people being in prison for life. Pennsylvania is extraordinarily harsh when it comes to handing out life, life sentences, even within the context of the US. And Fetterman sort of ma made that a core issue during his time as, as doing his time as Lieutenant Governor. What, what does it mean to think about clemency and mercy for people con convicted of murder um, uh, and prison for life? So what I, the reason I'm saying this is that there was, even in 2018, 2019, I remember pausing, tweeting about how unusual that was for someone with clear ambitions for federal or like at the statewide office, it was already in statewide office, was take was like taking on that issue pretty openly. Um, and then the fact that he was attacked on it and didn't shy away from it, it, it's not like he was running ads on, on clemency, but it's not like he was denying it or running away from it. it was so interesting because it was such a rare example of someone embracing the most controversial, I suppose, part of what, is kind of part of the criminal justice reform agenda, standing by it and, and winning the race because Federman ended up winning. Again, not point isn't that like he won because, because of this, but it was such an interesting example of like just defying every convention of how you run an ambitious uh, career in yeah. politics. That's Okay, first of all, that's an amazing point. I actually didn't know that about Fetterman. Did you know? Did you know yeah, that? About, I okay, I, I saw the the Republican attacks. He also had, um, you know, a formerly incarcerated person on his campaign. I know that. I knew team, that. But they were and coming they, after the right leaned it. into attacking him on that. Yeah. But I mean, it, almost hearing this back and forth, I find that astonishing. The the Fetterman thing, because nobody would give him the advice to do that. So clearly, he was a acting based off principle what he felt was the right thing. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, that was his whole style, not just on those issues, but also like on economic issues and, right, and healthcare. Yeah. Like he, you know. But I like, it almost makes me, and tell me what you think about this, Daniel. It almost makes me um, believe more my normie theory of politics, which is like, the voters are just like, who's the most normal of, of the kid. You know what I mean? Like Dr. Oz versus John Fetterman. There's no doubt about it. John Fetterman is quote unquote the most normal. And if you run back through like presidential elections, for example, hate to say it, but Al Gore versus George Bush. I mean, Al Gore is a little bit nerdy and George yeah. Bush was kind of like the let's have a beer guy, normal guy. And then you have like Obama versus Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney's Thurston Howell III come back to life. And Obama is, of course, Obama. Um, even Trump versus Hillary. You got like Hillary always came across as this sort of like insider elitist condescending and Trump was the just the asshole but quote unquote a normal asshole and then you know the Biden versus Trump Biden's more normal than Trump yeah. you know what I'm saying and I know this is sort of like a juvenile elementary conspiracy here but it almost it almost makes me think like perhaps the details don't and and that's not a good thing either by the way that the, the details don't necessarily matter all that much but it makes me think this normie theory of politics is i mean i think there's an extension of that to cultural issues which is i've always right thought, that's a good point right yeah i've always thought this with abortion in particular i mean i'm very strongly pro-choice and always have been but when Democrats have been on the back foot on abortion is when it's being litigated over the edge cases about like late, know, late super late, late yeah, term right, yeah. partial mm -hmm. birth abortion. Like then Democrats were kind of on the back foot on abortion. Well, with the overturning of Dobbs, like all of that is off the table. The right now, or the any, extremists. Yeah. Anything the right is going to push forward is going to inherently be on the extreme fringes. Correct. Um, just by the nature of the, the policy landscape that exists in the country now. And I, th I think you could see that on any number of issues. I mean, with regard to critical race theory, for example, 
Democrats are on the back foot when they're, you know, over policing language and, you know, making sure everybody says things that are sort of like that they don't really understand the terminology or they weren't ready to say that terminology or whatever. But when you start going into school systems and banning books, yeah, banning then, books is crazy. you know, saying like going after these teachers potentially for having like a picture of their spouse on their desk, people are like, what are you doing? It just doesn't. They've been so captured by an, a, a very ideological, um, very online faction within that party yeah. that any part of their cultural agenda that might have had some resonance ends up immediately shifting to an extreme that is very unappealing to, uh, you know, a general. Like, for example, we've talked about this before with um, with trans rights. You know, I think that there is lots of discomfort in the public about like, you know, sexuality among children and talking about gender ID. But then they immediately go to, no, actually we mean for this to also be about adults. Yeah. Right. And what they can, in some states, they're banning gender affirming care. Right. 26. And, and whereas, you know, it may not be the position we hold, but they probably had some sort of a political argument when they were just focused on kids. The minute you're like, no, no, we want to police what adults in their own lives can do, or we want to take kids away from parents if they're identifying as trans. People are like, "What? The? This it's, is not." It's the Matt Walsh this effect. This is not what I'm, I was on board I'm, for here. I'm calling this the Matt Walsh effect. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we'll we'll. I think I, the the concern I have about the what is happening, or for instance, on on for instance, on trans trans rights that you're describing, because like again when we're talking about what's happening in, in Pennsylvania or the Chicago suburbs, it's one thing, but that is not necessarily going to help the, the like reaction of people who are maybe more likely to find that to go too far. It's not necessarily going to help trans, trans, trans people who are living in mm-hmm. Missouri right now, or, um, or all, all of, or, or, or Oklahoma or all of, all of the states that are passing the, the most extreme, the most extreme laws and regulations that are going to harm a lot of people. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, as someone who just covers state politics and local politics a lot, uh, you know, that, that only, that, that, that is extraordinarily important. And if, and if the same bans or, or um, regulations are, are not, are, are not, are not going to happen elsewhere, it's going to be through what happens in state elections. It's going to be yeah. through what happens in school boards, it's going to be through what happens in an AG race, in an AG Republican primary, maybe. Um, but but that only, you know, the taking out federal protections, taking out federal courts for a long time, uh, um, you know, obviously, unless something major changes or there's 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 court reform. But if you take out federal courts, if you take out uh, federal intervention, there isn't um, there, there there isn't a clear road in places like Missouri to like repeal those pretty extreme um, laws at the moment or, mm. re- or regulations. So what do you do with that <laughs> is, right. is sort of the question. Yeah, Federalism so it, was a mistake. <laughs> so d- yeah, you're so right though. It depends on where you're looking and whether you're looking at the federal level, national elections, statewide elections, or at, you know, Yeah, you need protections level. at the federal level to override on this, and that seems like a tough road unless Democrats get a supermajority, and even then they're scared of their own shadow and probably would do a half measure. Yeah. The other question- well, at I'm- the moment, we, you know, we, we're also in a position, like, for, for, like um, there was this conversation about court expansion, court packing, uh, court reform, um, the, the, the White House convened um, 
some committee to advise on court reform. Like, forget all that for a second. What Democrats are now arguing are they stuck on is the fact that they no longer even have a majority on on the Senate uh, committee that confirms judges because of that because that Diane Feinstein isn't there. A situation that was very predictable a couple of years ago when the, the committees were made. So it's just like the asymmetry between like the things that people talk about that would get that would like affect these problems right uh and what is actually the conversation which is how did republicans end up with an edge on the judiciary committee uh just there's like such a such a, such a huge gap there yeah um that yeah there's also a huge gap between you would never see mitch mcconnell allow this situation oh, to unfold no and him way. lose his majority on the judiciary committee i mean putting judges on the bench was what that man lives for and democrats are just well, I guess there's they, nothing Okay, we can they do. were doing a good job, but now with Feinstein, it just it hit a brick wall. Another thing I wanted to get from you though, Daniel, is with now with a couple of, of years distance between the defund the police slogan really, you know, becoming prominent and going nationwide, you know, to the extent that Democrats, and I think they did, underperformed expectations in 2020. The media and um, a lot of centrist uh, Democrats really pinned the blame fully on the the defund the police slogan, which whatever you think of the policy, certainly the slogan, certainly the slogan is not a popular slogan. Right. But as I'm looking at this landscape now and I'm looking at, you know, Brandon Johnson winning in Chicago, Larry Krasner hanging on in Philadelphia, um, form DA has a shot in uh, Pittsburgh. I was reading about it in your magazine you know, it seems to me like the political impact of defund the police may have been very much overstated. But I wonder what your analysis is, because you follow these races a lot more closely than I do. Yeah, I mean, it gets to a lot of what we're discussing. I think for I mean, it's I think a lot of candidates on the progressive side who are running in these elections have this distanced themselves from the idea of cutting the, the police budget. Like Bre Brendan Johnson explicitly said he wouldn't. That did not prevent uh, his opponent from attacking him over past statements that were a little more open to the idea. But that in terms of that sort of being moved away from the overturn window of mainstream, mainstream politics, that has definitely um, had an effect. I also do think though that I think two things. First of all, I mean, the picture in 2020 was more blurred than it looked. The picture now is also more more blurred and it looks i think defund the police as uh has also been a proxy for attacking a lot of other things which is what we were just talking about with, with brandon johnson mm -hmm. as the, the, the there's going to be chaos in the streets what what definitely was the campaign against krasner what was the campaign against Boudin more successfully um that that um is all is all enmeshed in that and definitely has often failed i also think it's important to you know just keep in mind obviously that um the activists who talked about who like the BLM activists really put the fund the police on the table nationally in 2020 cared about what's happening like they they were often activists in democratic run um municipalities and cities mm -hmm. um and and their and their the goal of their activism for years has been how to change who holds power in democratic health cities like New York Chicago Philly and places like that whether they've lost or, or or they've won since then, whether change has happened, that that that's sort of where they've been active. Again, linking this to local politics, the question of 
how is that going to affect the suburban house rates in, in Virginia, which is sort of what the 2020 conversation was about. Um, it doesn't not, um, it, it obviously will matter to, to federal Democrats and how they, they talk about the issue, but, but the people who are making, who are, who are able to change policy and in Chicago within the Chicago municipal government or fail to in San Francisco, these people are trying to change something very different. And just like the, there's obviously that, that, that asymmetry and it's, it's hard to deny that there's been change in places like Philly and Chicago in the past, in the past few years, even if federal Democrats have totally gone the other way, for instance, and um, are, are very proactive about pointing out their support for police funding and increasing police funding. Yeah, I think that's all very well said. Um, Daniel, thank you so much for spending some time with us. And um, guys, Bolts Magazine is essential. Phenomenal, absolutely essential. phenomenal. Every election, and even you know these uh, elections that are coming up now that wouldn't be on my radar whatsoever. We're I'm very reliant in. on you. We're very yes. reliant on you to give us the information we need to, to don't talk to our audience. Yeah, never stop. You're great. I'm, he, I, you know, you've done the ballot initiatives, which I've been knee deep in, only because you do it. You like you consolidate them in a way nobody else does. It's right there in front of my face. It's glorious. We love you for that. Tell everybody where they can find you. Um, well, I think everyone should, should go check out Bolts after all that. So you can find us at boltsmag.org. Um, we, we have a lot of uh, new articles this week that I think will interest people, including a, a, a ballot initiative in San Antonio happening in a few weeks on police reform. Um, uh, so I could have mentioned it a minute ago as an example of what we're talking about. Um, and you can find us on Twitter at boltsmag uh, as well. And I, I hope you all check out our work. Yeah, guys, please not just check out their work, support their work uh, because it's vital and there really is no one else out there who is covering these issues in the same way. And follow Daniel on Twitter. His name on Twitter is Taniel. And I'm sure- very confusing. With a T. A lot of my audience, I'm sure they already know you, but it's Taniel. You won't miss him. All right. Thanks, man. We really appreciate it. Great to see you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's our pleasure. All right. That was Daniel Nishanian. I love that guy. He keeps me uh, educated. Oh, yeah. Yeah, people look at us and they're like, oh, thank you guys for keeping us educated. And it's like, no, that guy's doing the original sourcing. I don't well, know how he gets his stuff. Like, how do you get your stuff? follows things really carefully. And, um, yeah, I mean, the thing that's amazing about his articles and also the, the threads that he'll put out on Twitter is he'll take some, like, you know, random... DA race wherever and really lay out for you. Nope. Here's why this matters here's the policy a lot. Right. Yeah. Here's why this is a huge deal for this city and has, you know, reverberating impacts in this way. So, um, you know, a lot of people talk about the importance of local politics and state races or whatever, but he really brings that to life in a way that I think is vital. Um, the Fetterman point, I did not know that. And I mean, I have to go through the cases where, he released them with a fine tooth comb, but I, that might be to the left of me. You know? Yeah. Like, I want to free all the nonviolent offenders, but once you get to like, this person committed a murder, I'm like, sort of fuck them. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know all the details either, but I know that that was a strong focus when he was lieutenant governor. It was something they really came after him hard for and thought it would be a winning issue. And. But he's he wears what basketball thing? shorts and hoodies and like he's normal. So. Well, and not only that, but his opponent, yeah, Doctor Oz, the most like elitist goon in the world, yeah, such a weirdo, yeah. So, um, and and did himself no favors, et cetera, and didn't run an effective campaign, and just seemed like the most out of touch, like and also out of state 
millionaire of all time. So, um, but you know, Fetterman also really leaned into economic populism. Yeah, of course. Everything Mm -hmm. that he did, he didn't do it tepidly. Like if he had a position, he wasn't going to be afraid of standing up for that position, of leaning into it. I think there's a lot to be learned from that posture. Yeah, confidence. Like, whereas, yeah, like yeah, this is what I do this shit. Yeah, like, yeah whereas the, for, since, you know, since the Clinton era, the general being of Democrats is to be like We're terrified like you guys. of- I disagree with everything I've ever done. They just, yeah, they just assume <laughs> that everything they stand for is like unpopular. Right, and so yeah. they're like afraid of talking about it. Whereas in reality, a lot of these positions are popular. And even the ones that aren't, you know, above 50% above water, if you're confident about it and you lean into it and you make don't, an argument, you just don't make an show, argument. Right. Right. Because when you do this little like, uh, and you can tell that you're uncomfortable, well, people read into that like, oh, there must be a reason why they're ashamed of this position. Right, it exactly. must be a problem. It's like, it's like the dog thing. <laughs> Right, like the dog can sense your body language, and yeah. like, oh, but it's the p- voters can pick up on that too. So I'll give you an example for me, like uh, I'm against the death penalty. I, I don't think we should have death penalty. That's an unpopular position. It's like 55 percent or something in the country that wants to keep the death penalty, but like, so I wouldn't lean forward with that if I was on the campaign trail. But the argument I would make if I had to talk about it is, look, there are studies that show four percent of the time we kill the wrong people. Yeah. We have all these safeguards in place. Oh, you get right to appeal, all these different things. But still, 4% of the time, we kill the wrong people, which means 4% of the time, we are murdering innocent people with our tax dollars. And I'm not okay with that. And I understand the guy who's obviously guilty. I think any reasonable person understands like, yeah, go ahead. But at the same time, if you have that system in place, you're always going to kill some innocent people. And I can't have my tax money killing some innocent person because then I'm partly responsible for it. So that's why I'm against it. So it's an unpopular position, but that's an argument you make to be like, here's why I believe this. Yeah. And then people will respect it more. And even if somebody disagrees, they'll be like, well, but he's got reasoning for his position. You know what I mean? A lot of the little dances that the corporate Repub- the corporate Democrats rather um, do basically give credence to the Republican narratives. So Correct. They, they agree to the framing. Right. Right. For example, I mean, Biden's doing this right now. Right. He doesn't take his primary opponent seriously. He thinks he's got to position himself for the general election. I mean, to the extent that he's the one doing this calculation is another matter. But he's got this new chief of staff in who's much more like right leaning. And so you can see he's doing this whole like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to come in over the top and I, we're going to strike down the D.C. criminal justice reform laws that were passed. So I can give a nod to how tough on crime I am. Right. Mm-hmm. That, again, it validates the Republican framing or greenlighting the Willow Project as another example. It validates the Republican framing. The fact that, you know, they did not lean into, you know, the truth that a lot of inflation is about corporate price, price gouging, gouging and yeah. has nothing to do with wages and with labor and the fact that people got, you know, some money in their pocket during COVID, but they were convinced not to lean into that and not to talk about that. And that also validates the Republican economic framing. So it's not just like selling your position and leaning into it. It's also when you try to do these little like feints to the center, you basically give credence to the way that the Republicans are framing these issues. That's undoubtedly true. My question for you is what of that is messaging versus what is no he really believes this this is his politics who i have no and especially at this point i mean if you look at his history these are his politics right he was a very pretty conservative democrat for a very long time if anything fortunately as president he's been to the left of where he was historically yeah right so it's been he's been a better president than he's been a senator there's no doubt about that and the fact that there was such a 
clear shift when Ron Klain goes out and Zeitz comes in. He's a puppet at this point, right? That's like, what it just, makes me yeah. feel like is, right. is to even say, oh, this is Biden doing X or Y or Z. It does seem not, more yeah. like he's just being pushed and pulled by whoever's around him right. at this point. And he's out there like, oh, we're going to lick the world. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Sad. All right, guys. We love you very much. We will talk to you next time.